Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. When Americans think about the Second World War, they unsurprisingly focus on the period of direct U.S. involvement in the conflict between December 1941 and August 1945. But there was a lot more to the war, which began in Asia in 1931 and in Europe with the German invasion of Poland in September 1939. The months between the fall of 1939 and the winter of 1941 are often misunderstood when considered at all, yet they were years in which American diplomats and strategists struggled to develop a coherent policy toward a world war they hoped never to join. An especially difficult challenge emerged after the fall of France in June 1940. Before the surprisingly swift German victory, American strategy assumed a long struggle on the Western Front, much like the First World War, essentially relying on French resistance to provide American strategic breathing room. Once France fell, replaced by the semi-autonomous collaborationist regime based in Vichy and represented by the venerable war hero Marshal Philippe Pétain, the Roosevelt administration had to decide whether to treat that regime as a hostile German puppet or as a possible partner for post-war stability. That decision had enormous implications for France and Franco-American relations, but also for Anglo-American relations, as the British decided to back the Free French in London, led by renegade General Charles de Gaulle. Our guest today, Professor Michael Nyberg, has analyzed this fraught relationship in his new book, When France Fell, The Vichy Crisis and the Fate of the Anglo-American Alliance, published this year by Harvard University Press. In a fast-paced and engaging narrative, he shows how Washington attempted to respond to Vichy and is not shy about the faults of American policy and their long-term implications. Michael S. Nyberg is the award-winning author of Potsdam, The End of World War II and the Remaking of Europe, Fighting the Great War, and Dance of the Furies, Europe and the Outbreak of World War I, among other books. He is Professor of History and the inaugural Chair of War Studies at the United States Army War College, not to mention one of our podcast hosts here at the War Room. We are delighted to have him with us today on the other side of the podcast, Mike. Welcome to A Better Peace, Mike Nyberg. Thanks, Ron. It's great to be with you. So, Mike, what made you decide to write a book about Vichy? I had always been fascinated by Vichy. It's this strange political animal that that really has no precedent to it. Nothing like it has ever come uh, before or since, where half the country is occupied, the other half is 
left independent, technically neutral, and in control of the French Empire and in control of the French fleet. So it, it's a really strange political animal. So that was one reason I wanted to write the book. The other, as you said in the intro, was just to shine some more light on this period prior to Pearl Harbor, uh, which I, I really argue a, a lot is going on. The United States is is effectively pulling itself into the war uh, in no small part because it's trying to figure out what the world looks like without a solid, stable France in it. So I think those were the two kind of driving questions I had in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, when we when people talk about that period between 39 and 41, often, right, there's a, a lot of focus on the relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill, and there's a kind of inevitability story to American entry into the war uh, on the side of the Allies. How does bringing in this relationship with Vichy complicate our understanding of what the Roosevelt administration was up to in those two years between 39 and 41? Well, I think one thing it certainly does is, is underscores the fear and the, the outright panic when France fell. Uh, as you said in the intro, um, it, all American defense planning had been based on France holding the Germans off long enough to give the Americans the two most important things you want in strategy, time and choice. Mm -hmm. And when France fell, those two things no longer are true. So there are documents over at our Heritage and Education Center from people like Matthew Ridgway, who was in the War Plans Division, uh, who are just in an absolute panic over what to do. All of the all of the assumptions they had made now go completely out the window. And uh, that that kind of sense of fear, that sense of not quite knowing what to do is important to, to capture as we understand what the administration did next. So there was that panic. There was also the panic and the belief, not just in the United States, but in Europe as well, that if a country like France had fallen as quickly as it did, that the real root cause had to be internal. It had to be fifth column. It had to be sabotage. It had to be something that was going on inside. And that connects to the Japanese internment. It connects to the, the the kind of suspension of civil liberties that 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 happens in the in these months and years. So the more I did research on this book, the more Vichy kind of tied back directly or indirectly to all of these themes that I had been thinking about and studying as independent. And Vichy helped me link them all together. Hmm. Well, and uh, European historians, historians of France, uh, people who study Vichy, um, have come to really uh, emphasize its. Uh, collaborationist nature, how how it, it failed to do what it claimed it was doing, which was to uh, uh, pr- put up a screen between the, the French population and the German occupiers. Um, but what were the arguments? We, we You write about how the Roosevelt administration, through its uh, advisors, through its diplomats, tried to establish a positive relationship with Vichy. What were the arguments in favor of, uh, let's say, embracing Vichy and who made them? The most important person making these arguments, uh, you and I could go grab a cup of coffee and walk by an American <laughs> flag he gave to the Army War College. His name is René de Chambrun. Uh, he is the son-in-law of the new French prime minister, Pierre Laval, and he is also descended by marriage from the Roosevelts. He's a, he's a statutory U.S. citizen. He's descended from the Marquis de Lafayette. He's a very important, very influential person. And even before France had completely fallen, the French government, Pierre Laval, had sent him to the United States. He met with Franklin Roosevelt on the presidential yacht. 
And he sold this picture of a new France that would maintain its pro-American orientation, that would be anti-communist, that would be a force for stability, that would be a partner in, in recreating Europe at the end of the war, which they expect is going to come pretty soon. They expect Britain to, to surrender pretty soon. Uh, so this image of France as stable, pro-American, anti-communist is an alluring one to, to Americans who are reaching for something to look toward. Uh, there were plenty of Americans who saw right through this right away. But I think this image of a France that that could remain stable and remain nominally pro-American was difficult to resist. And Chambron stayed in the United States for several months after this meeting with Roosevelt, talking to really any American audience that would listen to him, making the argument that the fall of France didn't mean that the U.S.-French relationship was going to go away. You know, it's funny. Today, when I was walking to get my cup of coffee, I I, I made a special stop over by the flag and the the letter that's from uh, uh, Chevron there, and uh, that 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 jumped out at me when I read the book. And but all I could say is that letter and the the donation of the flag is from the seventies. And so Chevron clearly survived the war, survived mm-hmm. the damage to his reputation that came from supporting Vichy. He did more than that. He was a, a prominent celebrity lawyer after World War II. He defended Coco Chanel, who was a, a, a notorious Speaking collaborationist. collaborationist right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, he, he became a, a key figure in rebuilding Franco-U.S. relationships. He spent some time at Stanford, which is where some of his papers are still located. Uh, so he not only survived the war, he actually thrived after it, um, not unlike many of the collaborationists from the Vichy period. Although, you know, Chevron never had a really significant position inside the Vichy government. So it mm-hmm. I don't know that the word collaborationist is is quite right. Uh, but but he clearly not only survived, he he got himself in a position where he can take a flag that was flying over the, the grave of the Marquis de Lafayette and, and donate it to the U.S. Army War College, which is that's something pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, interesting is one word for it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, there are others we could use. You know, as, as Ron, as you know, and some of our listeners may know, we're moving into a new building soon, and I'm, I'm lobbying to get that flag put somewhere where my new office is going to be. <laughs> well, if there's a petition somewhere, let me know so I can sign it. Yeah, I don't want it to go to some Indiana Jones warehouse somewhere where you know top <laughs> men will will, 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 will keep an eye on it. Top men. Uh, yes. Well, speaking of top. <laughs> men. Um, who did Roosevelt rely on? Well, actually, actually I have two questions. One is I want to ask you, who did Roosevelt rely on to build relations with Vichy? But before we get to that, was Chambrun, um, was he misled or misleading the United States when he was saying that Vichy was going to be a stable anti-communist yet sovereign friend and partner of the United States. Did he did he understand what the regime was really like or did he not care enough to look very closely? I think at that point in 1940 he was like many people hoping for the best mm-hmm. and I think he was as as his father-in-law Pierre Laval was hoping he was hoping that the United States would would provide food and 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 money and aid as the United States had done to France in World War One. So they, they have a self-interested thing here. They want to make sure that American aid continues to flow. They want to make sure that the United States is a kind of partner in the peace process for them, that the U.S. doesn't sell them out. So there is a self-interested way uh, going on here. I think in the early phases of all this, Chambron certainly believed that Britain would surrender very quickly, and the next step would be a peace conference that would that would that would harm France, but wouldn't 
wouldn't destroy France, that France would emerge still as a great world power based on the French Empire, based on the the French fleet, which were under Vichy's control. Mm -hmm. His father-in-law, Pierre Laval, was firmly convinced that that France would lose Alsace and Lorraine, but he'd be able to outfox the Germans at this peace conference and that Germany could fight a war without France, but Germany couldn't come to a peace without France. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if Chevron went quite that far, but he... He had a lot of faith that, that France would emerge from this still quite powerful. Right. Now, Laval, of course, was also violently anti-British. Did Laval have a firm opinion one way or another about the United States? You know, Laval is a very cynical, very unpleasant, very nasty human being. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he wanted to 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 get everything that he could out of the United States while giving as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Laval is so hated by Americans. Uh, Dr. Seuss, who was then a, a political cartoonist for PM Magazine, usually drew him as a rat or as a, there were others depicting him as a marionette controlled by a swastika. He's the one figure in all this I can't find a single American saying anything particularly nice about. Um, so he must have known how Americans viewed him. But at the same time, he's just trying to, he's trying to make sure the Americans don't come off that fence, that they, the Americans stay neutral, the Americans stay at least benignly pro-French, if not actively pro-French. But he's a cynical, nasty operator from the get-go. And most Americans saw through him, even if they didn't see through people like Chambron and Pétain. Interesting. And so so who were, the, who were Roosevelt's point men in dealing with Vichy? There were two. The The first is his ambassador to Vichy, Admiral William Leahy, who was then serving as uh, governor general of Puerto Rico. Um, Leahy went to v- Vichy. Uh, it was supposed to be John Pershing was supposed to be the ambassador to Vichy because Pershing and Pétain were such close friends. Mm-hmm. But Pershing's health didn't permit that. So Leahy's job was to get there, figure out what Vichy was, figure out what American options might look like, and see if there was a way in which a combination of carrots and sticks from the United States could keep the Vichy fleet away from a place where it could hurt American interests, and to keep the Germans out of the French Empire in places like Martinique in the Caribbean, Dakar, Senegal, right at the the, the closest point where Africa reaches South America, the Atlantic ports of Morocco, all of those places that could have impacts on American interests. The second man is a diplomat uh, named Robert Murphy. Murphy is a uh, Francophile. He He's met most of these people. He knew virtually everybody in Vichy. His job was, was similar, but to do it from North Africa and figure out what the power dynamics there look like. Murphy pretty quickly figured out that if the United States was going to do something in Africa, they were going to need uh, a, an intel network. So he worked very hard to build a very clever network out of out of amateurs, really not mm-hmm. professional spies at all, uh, to start to gain some kind of intelligence about what North Africa looked like. He's the deal maker and he's mm-hmm. gonna he's gonna be at various positions in this drama from nineteen forty 1940 to nineteen forty three where he's in the middle trying to figure out a way to pursue American interests. So they're the two most important Americans that are that are consistently here uh, in the Vichy North Africa space. Right. And of course, it's North Africa, which becomes such a focus. Uh, and it's not by accident that the chapter titles in your book are all drawn from the most important work of art about occupied North Africa, Casablanca. Um, and uh, and so this idea that North Africa is the center of this relationship between the United States and Vichy, that of course, even as late as the, the torch landings in 1942, the United States is still uh trying to figure out whether there is a local Vichy uh, uh, general or admiral to deal with. Um, 
why did the United States not follow the British lead and simply embrace Charles de Gaulle's free French in June of 1940? There's a lot of reasons, but I think the most important is the Americans buy into this Chambron vision, and then Mm -hmm. it gets very difficult for them to come back off of it. And the other thing that I argue in the book is that very early on, uh, the campaign in Ethiopia that is ongoing brings Charles de Gaulle and the British together. There's an episode where a man named Félix Eboué, who is the first African governor general of a French colony in what is today the Central African Republic in Chad, uh, declares for Charles de Gaulle uh, in a shocking move. So there is an interest. If the British can support this man and support Charles de Gaulle, they can secure the southern approaches into Egypt and they can secure the Red Sea. So de Gaulle and the British have an interest they're working towards together that the Americans and de Gaulle do not. Mm-hmm. So that I think that's one reason. The attraction of Chambron is another. And uh, though I, 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 I admire a lot of what Charles de Gaulle did in this time period, he did go out of his way to annoy the Americans whenever he could. He did not... He, he made a lot of missteps in his relationship with the United States. So it became really, really difficult for the Americans to get off of that initial view that de Gaulle was really nothing more than a renegade brigadier general with no claim to the title of, of governance in France, mm. um, where the British are saying, well, look, we don't like him that much either, but we can understand that he's by far the best of the options that's out there. Right. You. Uh, this is not a big focus of your book, but I just have to ask, what was de Gaulle's beef with the United States as early as 1946? So much of what we talk about de Gaulle's beefs with the United States after 1945 are because of their relations between 1940 and 45. But did he come in already carrying a couple sides of beef with him into this relationship? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, a large part of it is, in his mind, Vichy's an illegitimate state. Vichy mm-hmm. is a, a puppet of the Germans. Uh, for the United States to recognize it, send an ambassador, receive an ambassador— exchange military attaches. Uh, at the very moment that free French soldiers are, are, are dying at Bir Hakim, this battlefield in, in North Africa that the metro stop next to the Eiffel Tower is named for, at the very moment when de Gaulle's free French are dying and bloodying it as part of the Allied cause at Bir Hakim, the Americans are, are still welcoming Vichy military officials into the White House, uh, to parades, to all of this. Mm-hmm. And de Gaulle just can't figure it out. He just can't imagine there's a way in which uh, the United States, with all of its high-minded principles from the Atlantic Charter and everything else, are going to embrace these reactionary German puppets. And so from the very beginning, he is suspicious of what the Americans are up to. He thinks the Americans want to just just make Vichy their puppet, just replace mm-hmm. Germany at the top of it. So right from the beginning, the relationship is really, really bad. I don't think it ever got good. Um, And in fact, some of the documents that I was able to uncover, uh, which I don't think anybody had ever seen before from kind of second and third layer State Department officials, they accuse him of being a fascist, being a secret communist, of uh, planning SS squads that are going to be answerable to him. I mean, every crime, every everything that you can think of, they're accusing de Gaulle of having done. Really? Fascinating. No, it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And and because I was thinking, so the the big three French so Vichy French military types that the Americans try to work with one way or another. So Maxime Vaillant, uh, Jean-Francois Darlan, and Henri Giraud. Um, tell me about the three of them and their place in American policy towards Vichy. Vaillant is the one that they turn to uh, 
hoping that he'll flip to the Allied side. Vagand is a very strange, very enigmatic, very weird guy. Um, in 1918, he was the chief of staff to Marshal Foch. He is actually the man who delivered the armistice terms to the Germans in the famous train at Compiègne. He's the man who actually hands the piece of paper. Interesting. So the idea of surrendering to Germany in 1940 is, of course, extremely distasteful to him, although he recognizes the, the military necessity of doing it. He's probably the most uh, pro-American of the Vichy French officials. That is, he worked with the Americans in World War I. Um, he, he had good, positive working relationships with many Americans, though Vagon's not a man that had many friends. He's a really strange strange guy. Uh, among other things, he never did find out who his biological parents were, although we have some guesses. Um, his mother was probably one of the many daughters of Prince Metternich, of all things. Um, so the Americans keep hoping that there's some way Vagand, who is the army commander in North Africa, mm-hmm. is going to flip sides and join join the Allies. Uh, that never happens. Uh, the second man, or the third man maybe that you mentioned, Henri Giraud, is this fascinating uh, character that is uh, in command of a French a unit, uh, French army, when 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 the the invasion begins in 1940, he's captured. He's taken to a castle in in Saxony, and he escapes. He he gets out of the castle. He gets to Vichy. He meets with Pétain, dodging Gestapo assassins the whole way. He meets with Pétain. He realizes Vichy is completely hopeless. Escapes from Vichy. Eventually works his way to London. And on paper, he looks absolutely perfect. He has no connection to Vichy. He has no connection to de Gaulle. In fact, he can't stand Charles de Gaulle. He has no connection to the Third Republic governments that had run France before. He looks good in a uniform, all of this. Um, So the Americans look at him as kind of a a, a bolt out of heaven uh, until they really start working with him. And then they realize he really doesn't have a plan and that the, 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 the military plans he does have are not practicable. They can't be done. He also insisted on being in command of any operation that occurred anywhere in French soil, which the Americans and British, of course, were not going to give him. So he becomes a a very difficult figure. The British dislike him right from the beginning. The third guy, uh, Jean-Francois Darlan, is is an admiral whose family had been in the French military for centuries. Uh, He had an ancestor at Trafalgar. He built the French Navy into this massive, powerful force that it was in the interwar years, uh, he is the most difficult for the Americans to read. He firmly believed that the Americans just were too weak to have any influence on events whatsoever. Yet in 1942, when the Americans landed in North Africa, neither de Gaulle nor Giraud wanted to help with the landings. And as it turned out, Darlan happened to be in Algiers visiting his sick son uh, at that exact moment. So the Americans were faced with this dilemma, which I describe in the book, of having neither of their two principal allies, neither the British nor the American ally, but they had their principal enemy in in North Africa. And there was every chance that he might be willing to cut a deal with them. So it's a very strange circumstance. in a coincidence that probably doesn't matter, but I nevertheless find interesting, Darlan's son had the exact same variant of polio that FDR had. So there, there is this very weird moment there in North Africa where the Americans think they might actually be able to use that fact to get Alain Darlan, his son, the same treatment FDR was receiving in Warm Springs, Georgia, which is where FDR uh, passed away and where his polio treatments uh, uh, largely happened. So it's this really weird cast of characters that, that are coming together in North Africa. Um, I describe it in the book, the number of future heads of government, heads of state, heads of army, heads of navy, who are all there. The future British prime minister, Harold Macmillan, is there. Uh, it's just this crazy world that, uh, you know, at, at moments 
felt like a scene out of the movie Casablanca. <laughs> and I'm grateful to my editor, Kathleen McDermott, my wonderful editor at Harvard, who let me keep those chapter titles in right. because a couple other folks I'd been working with said, no, no, th- those have to come out. So I- I'm grateful that she said, no, no, we, they're, they're going to stay right where they are. Yeah. As time goes by, people will like it more and more, I am sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. Very yeah. nice. Very yeah. nice. I have to work that in there. But, but of course, that's what I think is the funny we'll, thing. We'll about, always have Root Hall. We'll always have Root Hall, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> well, and when you were talking about Darlan, because this is the, the interesting thing is, right, is the Americans do consider making a deal with them. They, they are moving in that direction. It could have been incredibly complicated and difficult and completely destroyed the possible relationship with de Gaulle. And then the Americans are essentially rescued by a deus ex machina. And that is. Yeah. A young man by the name of Ferdinand Bonnier de la Chapelle. So what what happened is that the United States did eventually Robert Murphy and Mark Clark eventually did cut a deal with Darlan mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that uh, the Vichy French forces would, would stop resisting the United States uh, in exchange, the United States would leave Darlan in full control of North Africa, which mm-hmm. means that many of the Vichy government offices remained open. Um, Ernie Pyle, the great American war correspondent, was there and couldn't believe what he was seeing, that the anti-Semitic laws stayed in place. Everything stayed in place. Um, I think it's Edward R. Murrow who said, are, are we fighting the Nazis or are we sleeping with them? You know, what are we doing? Um, FDR used the word temporary, I think, five times in his opening statement on this. Hmm. But what, what, what starts to happen is that the Americans realize that Darlan is is willing to work with them. Um, I think it's Harold McMillan or Anthony Eden, one of the two, who used the line, once bought, he stayed bought. In other words, he was as, he was as uh, much of a toady to the Americans as he was to the Germans. So, you know, what, what I argue in the book, what happened is by, by Christmas 1942, the Americans are, are really warming up to the possibility that Darlan could be the guy that, they, that they're going to work with. Um, in the same way that the United States was comfortable with Francisco Franco remaining in power in Spain, Salazar in Portugal, maybe there's a way in which you, 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 you leave Darlan in control of France. Of course, Giraud, de Gaulle, the British are all appalled. Uh, Churchill had to give a speech in the House of Commons in which he said, look, I had nothing to do with this. We didn't know about this. Um, all kinds of bizarre, bizarre things that are starting to happen. And then on Christmas Eve 1942, Darlan is stepping into his office in Algiers, and this young man, uh, Ferdinand Bonnier de la Chapelle, uh, a French resistance figure, steps out of the adjacent office and shoots him dead. So it, you know, everybody sort of, feels this great sense of relief. Uh, Anthony Eden wrote in his diary, like, I, 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 I never felt such a sense of relief in all, all the war. Uh, Mark Clark said it was like lancing of a troublesome boil. I mean, these great responses to the death of, of, of Jean-Francois Darlan. Uh, and that's when the, the moment really opens, I think, for Charles de Gaulle. Mm-hmm. What would have happened to de Gaulle? What would have happened to France? What would have happened to America's relationship with France if Bonnier de, had, had chickened out or if he had missed? Uh, is a great open question. Mm-hmm. Because there was certainly, there was no, despite the criticism the Americans were receiving, there was no indication they were backing away from this commitment. At the no, time just, the opposite. just the opposite. Uh, Eisenhower was praising all of the cooperation that, that the United States got from Darlan. They were starting to cut economic deals. They were starting to go beyond the sort of temporary governance of North Africa into more permanent agreements. And Virtually all the Americans that work with Darlan, they were snide about it, but they certainly said, like, you know, Mark Clark in this this terrible baseball mixed metaphor that once we got him in the box for our side, he pitched big league ball. You know, in other words, you know, he he 
he, we could control him yeah. as long as we didn't interfere with local governance in North Africa, because that was all Darlan cared about, mm-hmm. that Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia were French when the war was over. Hmm. Well, and so by that time, so as you say, the doors open for, for Charles de Gaulle, the, uh, the Americans, the British are clearly in the war. Eventually, the Germans would, would, would essentially reoccupy much of southern France and uh, America is spared. The United States is spared the consequences of long-term cooperation with Vichy. But what are the long-term consequences for Franco-German relations of this two-year flirtation with Vichy? You know, it's really interesting. The, the British documents that I was able to see just before COVID shut down all the travel, mm-hmm. um, there, there was one document in which the British report, a British uh, field officer reports that even as late as 1944, the Americans were still willing to consider Pétain as a figurehead of the French government. Uh, and there's a notation in Anthony Eden's own handwriting that says, we have always suspected the Americans of this. Uh, so one problem is the, the lasting mistrust with the British over French policy. But there's a huge problem, of course, in U.S. relations with France that de Gaulle, when he finally did take over, uh, recognized that that the Americans were perfectly happy with Darlan. They were perfectly happy with Vichy. They were perfectly happy with all of these, in de Gaulle's eyes, traitorous right-wing pro-German governments. So the, the, the fear as you get to the post-war period, and it's mentioned a lot, the new American ambassador, the new American secretary of state are talking about it a lot, that the French people either see the United States as pro-Vichy, which is obviously quite bad, mm-hmm. or they see the United States uh, as as not sufficiently pro-French, that they, they didn't care what happened to France. They were willing to do whatever they had to do. So I, I think this is really important that that from the beginning, the, the Americans had this view that, well, we liberated the French, like they, they should love us. They should be throwing flowers at us. And of course they did. But as soon as that great moment of joy was over, there's a lot of mutual suspicion. There's a lot of mutual anger. Uh, had it not been for de Gaulle, I think the United States would have gone with a full military occupation of France, which was <laughs> certainly under planning, something called AMGOT, the American government of the occupied territories. Uh, once de Gaulle saw that, he said, absolutely not. Uh, so, you know, there were a lot of open questions. Would France be treated as a liberated country like Norway, or would it be treated as an occupied country like Italy? And the Americans were certainly leaning toward occupied. So, so all of this created some uh, tremendous friction once you got past the the joyous moments like the liberation of Paris and liberation of Strasbourg. Fascinating. Well, a fascinating part of and conclusions that come from a fascinating book. Mike, what's your next project going to be? Or is it is it impolite to ask that at this stage? Oh, it's not impolite. I just don't know. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we I want to wait until archives reopen and I get a chance to go back and, and work in the French archives before I know if a few of the ideas I have will actually work. Um, but at this point, I'm, I'm not really sure. So I've got a couple of ideas, but uh, nothing definitive yet. Gotcha. Well, whatever it is, I look forward to inviting you back on A Better Piece to talk about whatever comes from your work. Mike Nyberg, thanks for joining us today to talk about when France fell, the Vichy crisis, and the fate of the Anglo-American alliance. Thanks so much, Ron. Great talking to you. Great talking to you, Mike. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and suggestions for future programs. And please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice after you have subscribed to A Better Piece, because that helps other people to find us as well. We're always interested in hearing from you on expanding this 
community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.